Hello, you're very welcome to Long Reads, a Jacobin podcast going out every two weeks where we look in depth at political topics and thinkers. My name's Daniel Finn. I'm the Features Editor here at Jacobin, and I'll be presenting the show. In the next few weeks, we'll be covering topics like the Arab uprisings and the history of Nigeria, along with thinkers like Albert Camus and Eric Fromm. This year marks the 70th anniversary of the Korean War, an immensely destructive conflict whose scars, both physical and psychological, are still very much in evidence in the two Korean states today. It was the first great confrontation of the Cold War between the US and the Soviet Union. And it was also the first time, and to date the last time, that troops from communist China and the US have faced each other directly on the battlefield. Yet compared with Vietnam, Korea has not lingered in popular memory to the same extent. In fact, it's often been referred to as the Forgotten War. Owen Miller is an historian of modern Korea who teaches at SOAS in London. I began by asking him if he could summarise the human cost of the war and explore the question of why it has been forgotten. Right, yeah. So to, to deal with the first question about the human cost of the war, I mean, it was really huge when you consider this is a relatively small country, small geographically, relatively small in terms of population. And yet it, it, it cost a huge number of lives. Uh, at least as many non-combatants died as soldiers, possibly around 2 million. There has been no definitive accounting of the numbers of civilian casualties, perhaps better accounting of combatant casualties. But even so, we, you know, people often talk about the casualties as being, or the deaths rather, as being in the millions, uh, which doesn't really tell us everything we would like to know. Perhaps when you compare to today where we get daily updates on, on the, the toll of coronavirus and, and so on, it's, it's a huge contrast in, in many ways. There were kind of three phases of the war which were particularly brutal in different ways for the civilian population of the Korean Peninsula. The first of those really was before the start of the war proper. So we're talking in the years 48, 49 in South Korea, where there was an emerging guerrilla war, civil war going on in South Korea against, first of all, the US military occupation government in South Korea, and then against uh, its successor, which was the, the South Korean government, the Republic of Korea government under Syngman Rhee. And that was a very brutal civil war focused particularly on the island of Jeju, uh, where it is still vividly remembered today and where perhaps 30,000 people were killed in that small scale civil war. Uh, it continued into what has been described by some recent scholars like Brendan Wright. Also, another scholar who's been working on this is uh, Huang Sugyong. Both of those scholars have talked about this as being a kind of politicidal or genocidal war against Korean civilians and anyone who was deemed to be associated with communism or with uh, communist guerrillas and so on, which then claimed the lives of thousands, perhaps hundreds of thousands more before the start of the war in the summer of 1950 and also immediately after the start of the war in the summer of 1950 when many political prisoners and suspected communist sympathisers were killed by the Syngman Rhee regime. So that's the first phase. The lead up to the war, which was also extremely brutal, then the war itself, the first phase of the war between the June of 1950 and sort of the February, March of 1951 is a very mobile war, moving front lines, 
with the North Koreans sweeping down the peninsula to begin with, then the UN forces under the US command sweeping back up the peninsula, then the Chinese and the North Koreans sweeping down the peninsula once again, and then finally UN forces going back up. So you had this sort of four waves of the war, obviously each time sweeping refugees before them, uh, causing a huge, dreadful human casualties, but and also destruction of roads, infrastructure, houses, and so on. That's the second wave, perhaps principally creating millions of refugees and millions of displaced people who ended up on the side of the border that they did not intend to be on or did not come from. Uh, the final third phase we can talk about is after the war had reached something of a stalemate in the spring of 1951, when you have the beginnings of negotiations for an armistice, but the fighting continues at the front line, which is rather ironically by that time quite close to the 38th parallel where the, the peninsula had originally been divided. And that fighting continues, but at the same time, the US Air Force continues an extremely brutal and extensive aerial bombing campaign against North Korea, which lasts up until 1953 and causes huge devastation to North Korea. Really, very few, if any other countries uh, in the 20th century have been subjected to such an extensive bombing campaign and so devastating broadly to the entire country. So, yeah, I would say that's the... that's. My summary of the human cost of the war, it's very difficult to sum up such, a, such an extensive and brutal war. In terms of the, the reasons why it has been forgotten, yeah, I mean, I, well, it, it's become sort of a cliche, I guess you could say, to call it the forgotten war, the unknown war. There was a very good documentary made in the late 1980s by a British TV company, Thames TV, with John Halliday and Bruce Cummings, called Korea the Unknown War. So yeah, these ideas of unknown or forgotten are, are very much used in terms of the Korean War, but, but they are real. People don't talk about it. I guess you could say that one thing is Vietnam itself came along, and for various reasons, Vietnam sort of eclipsed the Korean War in the consciousness of the US and, and more generally in the world as well. So that's one thing. Vietnam war played a role, I guess, in obliterating that earlier memory. And the Vietnam and Korean wars, in a way, come from two different eras in terms of media. I think that plays a role. Vietnam War, you know, was, was often cited as the first big war of the, the TV era, the TV news era. And there are many other reasons. I guess, you know, you could say, in one sense, imperial powers don't like to remember the brutal wars in which they persecuted in various parts of the world. Britain doesn't like to remember its counterinsurgency campaigns and other wars that it carried out. It likes to remember its victorious war against fascism, obviously, in, in the Second World War, but it doesn't remember other wars. So I guess that's another reason that there's, there's a deliberate amnesia around this. And it was not also exactly a, 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 a victorious war for the US and the UN. It was a war that really ended in a stalemate and back at the the situation that prevailed before the beginning of the war. It was not a victory for either side. So in that sense, you know, both sides found ways to claim victory, but um, neither side really uh, achieved exactly what it wanted to. So I think in that sense, it's not a war to be remembered. Of course, you know, I guess that argument doesn't work particularly well for Vietnam because uh, the US was perhaps, you know, more obviously defeated in Vietnam. 
We're now going to hear two clips from the documentary that Owen mentioned earlier, Korea, The Unknown War. In the first, Gregory Henderson, a former US Foreign Service officer and Korea expert, discusses the partition of Korea. In the second, a North Korean cameraman describes the impact of the US bombing campaign, which he witnessed firsthand. Of all the countries we divided, Korea was the most innocent, the least deserving of uh, being divided. We never intended, in a planning way, permanently to divide Korea. We intended to have a united Korea. The mistake was that we didn't lay the proper grounds to occupy Korea jointly with the Soviet Union. And one of the reasons we didn't do that was the residual fear of Soviet advantage through cadres, which we did not have. When I filmed the destruction of the city by the B-29 aircraft, I had to tie myself and my camera onto a large pillar, since otherwise I would have been blown away. If a large bomb, such as a one-ton bomb, exploded, the blast was so strong it would demolish everything within 150 feet, just like paper. As I was filming, the child begged me to save his mother's life. He didn't realize she was already dead. I went on filming him through my tears. I had my job to do as a cameraman. I didn't stop even to wipe away his blood or strap up the wound on his back. I still feel a dreadful pain today whenever I remember that scene. There was a controversy among historians for a long time about the origins of the war in the short term rather than the long term perspective. And that controversy was resolved, at least to some extent, by the opening of the Soviet archives in the early 90s, when we had proof that Stalin had indeed given his blessing to Kim Il-sung to launch an offensive against the South in, in 1950. That still leaves open the question, doesn't it, of whether the war was a homegrown North Korean enterprise that Stalin endorsed or whether Stalin had his own reasons for wanting North Korea to go to war. I mean, as far as I understand the historiography of the origins of the war now, as it stands at the moment, um, it was very much a drive coming from Kim Il-sung and the leadership of North Korea to reunify the country by force. And, you know, Kim Il-sung spent the best part of a year persuading Stalin and Mao uh, to support him or, you know, really to give him permission to go to war. So, yeah, it was something that came largely from the North Korean side. Of course, there's a certain kind of logic going on here. It wasn't simply that the North Koreans wanted to invade South Korea. You know, there was a, again, a kind of low intensity conflict developing from 48, particularly in 1949, between North and South Korea with incursions over the border from both sides, uh, skirmishes, exchanges of fire. So I think, although... Aspects of what Bruce Cummings argued in terms of the origins of the Korean War have not stood up to the the more recent historical scholarship. Many of the things he said do stand up. I mean, things, for example, the fact that North and South Korea were already in a kind of conflictual state even before the, the war began. And it was a question of which side would be able to 
go first, if you could put it that way. I think that's a way, a way of putting it. Going on to, you know, the question about Stalin or Stalin and Mao, I think, you know, I guess that once they made the decision to support Kim Il-sung, they did have their own interests, you know. I mean, you could, you could never accuse Stalin of uh, being sort of completely altruistic and, you know, he had he had his interests, the, the interest, the strategic interests of the Soviet Union very much in mind. And certainly once the war started as well, he had those interests. It did form part of the more general vying for power and influence in the world after the Second World War and at the beginning of the Cold War. And so I think, you know, Stalin's decision, first of all, not to support Kim Il-sung and then later to support Kim Il-sung, both of those came from his judgments about what was best in terms of extending extending and consolidating the Soviet Union's power both in Europe and and in East Asia and in other in other places. And once the war was going, you know, Stalin and Mao both, you know, wanted to actually prolong the war to some extent. This has been covered recently by the scholar Catherine Weathersby, you know, well known specialist on the Korean War. They wanted to prolong the the, the Korean War for their own ends, partly so that Stalin could distract the Americans from from Europe. That question about the origins of the war, it feeds into a wider issue, which is what was the character of the two Korean states that were established by the superpowers after 1945? And what was their relation to the long struggle against Japanese rule that had preceded it? Yeah, this is a really big, huge question. I can't possibly do it justice, but I can hopefully kind of cover it in outline. The two states uh, were both I think even before the Korean War, we would recognize them as being authoritarian states in certain ways. The northern state was very much modeled institutionally on the Soviet Union with the the, the security apparatus, you know, in some ways replicated in North Korea alongside the government institutions, or what they would have called democratic institutions. Um, They're very much based on the Soviet sort of model. And that, of course, did include the suppression of other political parties, political dissidents, and so on, right from early on, even under the Soviet military occupation before the North Korean government was established. Uh, In the South, yeah, a fairly similar picture. You know, the US military government in southern Korea began to suppress oppositional forces, particularly those associated with the communists or trade unions in 1946, and their suppression of those forces became stronger and stronger in 47. And then 48, the Republic of Korea government is established under Syngman Rhee, who is himself quite, I think by most people, has been recognised being quite an authoritarian character in himself. And very quickly in 48, 49, they began to introduce very powerful, sweeping kind of legal powers to suppress opposition. And as I said in my previous answer, you know, they began to actually physically suppress communists, fight a counterinsurgency battle in some parts of the country, and also to round up any suspected communists and many people who probably had nothing to do with South Korean communism. Um, so yeah, it was an authoritarian government. Not, And I, and I think it's, it's useful to say not just against people who were communists. Uh, you know, authoritarian methods were used against the non-communist opposition to Syngman Rhee's rule as well. In terms of the relationship to Japanese rule, I mean, there are different ways of looking at this. Both of the governments in North and South Korea 
had representatives of people who were very important in the independence movement against Japanese rule. Singh Man Rhee himself was a long-time exile and very prominent member of independence organizations and so on. Uh, in North Korea, Kim Il-sung, as we know, was a, was, had been a guerrilla fighter in the, in the Chinese Communist Party fighting the, well, fighting with Koreans, not in a Korean uh, guerrilla group in Manchuria against Japanese colonial rule in the 1930s. So they both had some pedigree of being uh, independence fighters. But the reality was very complicated. There were a lot of other independence fighters and figures who may have had as much, if not more, of a claim to represent the Korean people post-liberation in 1945. A number of them were famously either imprisoned or killed in both North and South Korea. For example, in South Korea, two very key figures, Kim Gu, uh, one of the pre- early presidents of the Korean provisional government in exile, and another f- uh, figure, Yo and Hyong, kind of social democratic type uh, independence fighter. Both of them were assassinated in the late 40s, quite possibly at the orders of uh, Singh Man Rhee. So, yeah, I mean, I could, there's so much more that could be said about their relationship to Japanese rule and the independence movement. I mean, both North and South Korea also inherited elements of Japanese bureaucratic government. South Korea much more than North Korea, certainly, but we can find traces even in North Korea of elements, you know, that were inherited from the colonial government. It's, it's sort of almost impossible for that not to happen in a way, I guess, in a post-colonial state that it inherits some aspects of the colonial rule, bureaucratic systems and so on. But it was much more marked in South Korea, where there was a huge issue around the question of collaborators, who had collaborated with the Japanese colonial regime and you know who and which of them should be excluded from government and public roles, should any of them have their property confiscated. And it's still a live issue, actually, even today, you know, 75 years after liberation um, in South Korea. In view of their underlying political character and the divergence and the antagonism between them, do you think it was only a matter of time before there was a war that if the North had not started the war, the South might very well have done the same? Yes, I think it's certainly possible. I never like to say things were inevitable in history, but I think it is pretty likely that there was going to be a war between North and South Korea. And even if Kim Il-sung had not got the permission of Stalin and Mao to to start that war in the summer of 1950, it, something may well have broken out. So I think it's quite likely. And it's certainly possible that it would have come, you know, from Singh Man Rhee as the president of South Korea. He was someone who had an open policy talking about marching north to reunify the country. So he openly talked about the idea of forcibly reunifying the country with military force. Um, Of course, whether that was, you know, rhetorical, whether that was something he could actually achieve is another matter, Uh, you know. Essentially, he didn't get the backing of the US in the way that Kim Il-sung got the backing of the Soviet Union. He didn't get the the tanks or the, the military training that North Korea got. So North Korea was was also in a, in a considerably better position militarily to carry out the attack on the South. Despite the fact that we have to always remember this, despite the fact that South Korea population-wise was twice the size of North Korea and still is today. The international communist movement is willing to use arm invasion to conquer independent nations. When President Harry Truman spoke to the American people in June 1950, he presented the war as a righteous struggle 
against communist aggression and in support of democracy and the rule of law among nations. The fact that communist forces have invaded Korea is a warning that there may be similar acts of aggression in other parts of the world. Free nations must be on their guard more than ever before against this kind of sneak attack. Within a few months of the war's beginning, uh, two major powers had become involved, the United States on the side of the South and China on the side of the North. Uh, could you talk a little about their respective motivations for getting directly involved in the conflict and what impact it had on the character of the war? Yeah, this is an, this is an interesting one. Sometimes it seems when we look at the Korean War as though multiple different people and different states made kind of miscalculations in this war in the sense that, first of all, the North Koreans and to some extent the Chinese and the Soviets made a miscalculation that the Americans would not intervene or at least would not intervene in such force. But then again, the Americans, when they decided uh, in September, October 1950 to go over the 38th parallel into North Korea and directly threaten China, they made a miscalculation that China would not intervene in force as well. So you have this sort of you know, escalating set of mis- miscalculations. Um, I must say I'm not an expert on what was driving US politics at the time in uh, the summer of 1950, but clearly at that point they, the, the US um, leadership decided that it was time to sort of draw a line and to defend one of their satellite states to prevent, you know, this domino effect and this kind of uh, thing that came to be very key phrase in the Cold War. So yeah, they they went into it. They obviously used the UN. Um, they used it as, I guess, a test of the UN, a way of, of um, bringing together an alliance under their, essentially under the US command, but under the UN banner to, as they would put it, defend the free world against, against aggression, so on. Uh, for the Chinese, I think the decision to intervene, well, on the one hand, Mao had actually as part of the deal that was struck really between Kim Il-sung, uh, Stalin and Mao, part, Mao's part of the deal was that if things went badly for the North Koreans, the Chinese would intervene to defend them. That was one of Stalin's conditions for supporting the war. In the first place, Stalin did not want to be directly involved. He did not want the Soviet army to be directly involved. So the condition was that China essentially would supply the troops, supply the military. And so he had to, Mao, first of all, had to follow through on that when it became clear that the North Koreans were close to defeat. But also China was very, feeling very directly threatened. And, you know, that's not a fantasy of theirs. The US and UN forces by October, I guess it was October, early November 1950, if I remember correctly, they were right up at the border between North Korea and China. They were up at the Yalu River. So they were threatening directly China. And, you know, the you have to remember that the, the Chinese Civil War itself is only about a year, you know, concluded a year before this. So there's still the possibility that the fledgling People's Republic of China could be overturned, possibly, and replaced by a nationalist government. That's certainly what Chiang Kai-shek wanted in Taiwan. So there is a real sense of threat. You also have MacArthur in charge, Douglas MacArthur, who is very gung-ho at this point. You have Curtis LeMay, who's in charge of the uh, US Bomber Command. And these are people who are, you know, openly talking about the idea of using nuclear weapons against China as well. So 
it's very understandable in many ways from the Chinese side why they would then decide uh, to, to intervene to save DPRK. It was self-interest added on top of uh, you know an obligation that uh, Mao had made basically to Stalin. Once you had that full-scale Chinese intervention to counterbalance the full-scale uh, American and British intervention on the side of the South, it did lead to an effective stalemate after a period of time. And yet the war itself dragged on for another two years after that. Why did it take so long to conclude an armistice? Yeah, there were problems on both sides. I mean, this is a real, one of the, you know, the many tragedies of the war, but but there's a tragedy that in a way it's a war that should have ended a year after it began, uh, back really where it started. The two, well, not two sides, by this time it was really three sides should have, you know, agreed that they had reached a stalemate and they, they could have an armistice. But there are a number of factors that prolong the war. I mentioned before uh, recent research by Catherine Weathersby that's looked at the reasons why Stalin and Mao, for their own strategic reasons, wanted to prolong the war. And therefore, that helped to draw out the uh, the negotiations on the armistice. I think there are a number of other, perhaps more minor factors. Uh, the key question within the armistice no- negotiations became the POW question. And so the POWs became a sort of new front line in the Cold War at this point. This has been very well detailed in a recent book by Monica Kim. And in her book, she sort of outlines how there was a battle for the soul of the POWs because the two sides argued different things. The Chinese North Korean side argued that POWs should, according to the Geneva Convention, be returned to the armies, the the, the the nation that they had come from. The US-UN side, on the other hand, argued that POWs should be given freedom of choice about where they would go. Now, of course, when you think in the Korean situation where you have, you know, one people, but fighting on two different sides, and often people had to change sides or had to change sides or forced to be, you know, they were forcibly conscripted to the southern side when they were actually supporting the north and vice versa, of course. And so there was some sense to what the Americans were arguing in the sense that it was not a clear question of where people came from. The same problem actually applied to the Chinese soldiers, many of whom were originally nationalist soldiers who had been then conscripted into the Chinese volunteer army fighting in Korea. But then it became used as this kind of football, you know, where uh, neither side could agree on how to deal with this this question of of the POWs, because both sides wanted to use it as a um, potential propaganda victory uh, of people converting or defecting from one side um, to the other. And in the end, they did come to a compromise, a sort of compromise agreement on this, in which people could also choose a third option of not returning to either North or South Korea. Anyway, it's a very interesting, complicated story, but that was one of the key problems that drew out the negotiation for months and then years. I think there was also a jostling for advantage at the front line as well, that you know both sides thought they might be able to have a last push to gain more territory and actually get something more out of the war than they had and not end up with a post-war armistice line, which was essentially around about where the 38th parallel had been. Um, and other factors as well. I mean, in South Korea, the end of the war became a controversial issue with Syngman Rhee himself not wanting to end the war, fighting the Americans 
obviously he didn't have the ultimate say at all, but, you know, actually arguing with the Americans that the war should continue to the, the bitter end and therefore trying to sabotage in some, in, in, at certain points, the Americans' um, negotiation efforts. So there are a number of different factors, but it is ultimately one of the great tragedies of the war that, that fighting death and, and bombing carried on for two more years. You know, as he said earlier, during that period of de facto stalemate, it didn't mean that the bombers were silent, that in many ways the most intense phase of the US bombing campaign took place. Do you think that there was any kind of coherent political or military rationale behind that bombing campaign? Or was it an early example of that phenomenon of if you have a weapon, you have to use it? Mm, I think it was probably a bit of both. It seems fairly clear that the US Air Force wanted to try out relatively new weapons and new types of napalm. For all sides in this war, tragically, it became a great a great arena in which to practice their military technique and to use their new technology and so on for the destruction of, of, of human beings. And, yeah, I mean, there was, so there was some strategic use in it, I guess, to the Americans, but it, it seems to become something of an end in itself. You know, they kept bombing even though they'd run out of actual targets, which would be any of any strategic use to them. They were bombing rural villages and so on. On on top of that, I guess it also had the function for the Americans was also one of just putting pressure on the Chinese to conclude the negotiations. So, you know, you have this game going on between the Chinese and, and the Americans who will blink first and the Americans, you know, using more and more bombing pressure. But of course, it was not actually the Chinese who were being bombed. It was it was the Koreans. And, and by that time, by, you know, 52, 50, well, certainly 52, the, the North Korean leadership really wanted the war to end. And they were at, at odds with the Chinese on that. You spoke a little earlier about the difference between Korea and Vietnam in terms of popular memory and public history and so on. But there was also a clear divergence between them at the time when the wars were taking place, that there was a very powerful, very high profile anti-war movement in the United States, but also in European countries and in Australia and in Canada and so on. Korea really didn't have the same impact. Now, I know this is to a large extent a question about American and European politics rather than a question about Korean politics. But why do you think there was that divergence? Yeah, I think I can identify perhaps three key factors. I'm not saying these are at all exhaustive. People may come up with with a number of others, but three key factors. One of them I mentioned earlier, I think it's the TV effect. You know, the fact that people for the first time had this very direct, immediate view of a war on the ground via TV news and journalists who were there on the ground in a way that they, they hadn't before. You know, it had been more mediated through newspapers, through perhaps newsreels, which are, you know, highly kind of selective and edited and so on. So, And I think there was also other kinds of new reporting in terms of investigative reporting and reporting of atrocities, photographs, including some very famous iconic photographs that we've probably all seen multiple times. Um, And so the kind of media representation of the war was very very different. Although I mentioned in the Jacobin article that there were journalists who tried to expose some of the atrocities that happened during the Korean War. They didn't by any means get the kind of mainstream exposure that that those journalists who exposed similar things in the Vietnam War. I think perhaps generational difference is quite important here. You know, the the sort of the younger generation of people, the people who the men who are going to fight in the Korean War had themselves actually just experienced World War Two. 
their families had just experienced World War Two. They were used to living in an environment of war, and many of them, particularly in Europe, you know, had experienced bombing campaigns themselves. Right? This was not uh, a very strange and exotic thing. This was something that they had experienced. I think the generation who were fighting in the Vietnam War and protested against the Vietnam War were the, were the next generation. You know, they were their children, right? They were, I guess we would say, the boomer generation. They had a very different experience. They had not just experienced another, you know, a great world war. And I guess they were very focused on the Vietnam War as an expression of many of the things that were wrong in the world and the way in which the US was uh, exerting its imperial power around the world and so on. So that's, I think, a generational difference. I think the third thing I would touch on would be that the whole political environment in the US and Europe was very different, right? So, I mean, the, the Korean War happens at the birth of, of the Cold War when, the, you know, the Cold War ideological framework is is being born and I think at that time perhaps has some vitality to it, has some purchase to it. You have the beginning of McCarthyism. You have all the discourse around the free world, Perhaps it extends out of the discourses of fighting fascism in the Second World War as well. So you can see perhaps how the wider public goes along with fighting to defend freedom in, in, in Korea. By the time of the Vietnam War, I think the Cold War ideological framework is pretty worn out, right? Uh, people are questioning the idea of a, of a US-led free world much more. And of course, it also comes in the context of the civil rights movement in the US. It comes in the context of the rise of a new left in Europe who would then give birth to the, you know, 1968, the sort of great revolutionary year of which, you know, protests against Vietnam played a role in it. But I guess also that new left kind of surge played a role in creating the Vietnam protests as well. So I think that political environment is a big issue. Korea may have been a forgotten war, but a comedy series set during the conflict became one of the biggest hits in American television history. In fact, the final episode of MASH, which was watched by 105 million people, is still the most popular broadcast of all time, with the exception of the Super Bowl. It's related to that question, but a little more specific, perhaps. What was the position or the attitude taken by the international left at the time in all its different components, social democrats, communists, other minority currents on the left as well? I think, obviously... Official communist parties around the world were in support of North Korea. They were in support of the Chinese intervention in North Korea. It goes without saying, really. I have not heard of any kind of dissident views coming from communist people in communist parties. Social democratic parties, obviously, a much more mixed picture. I think in general, they were probably, and I'm, I'm really this is mainly guesswork, but they were probably supportive of the UN action. I mean, you have to look at the UK where... It was a Labour government that sent troops to join the UN forces from Britain in, in 1950. But I think there were also, of course, many individual members and even politicians within social democratic parties who did not support the war or were actively opposed to the war. But they were not, uh, I don't think the organisations themselves were oppositional then when it comes to Trotsky's attitude to the war, this is an interesting thing because it, it opens up uh, some of the big 
issues for Trotskyists in the post-war period uh, about how they relate to both the Soviet Union and then to the new Soviet satellite states that had been formed since 1945, including North Korea. And this was a really big live issue. And then the Korean War, you know, opened up the issue even more. And I guess you could say, putting it simply, that the, the sort of mainstream of Trotskyists, people who perhaps would later become to be called orthodox Trotskyists, they supported North Korea and the Chinese, and then there were dissidents or sort of, you know, heterodox Trotskyists around in various parts of the world who opposed the war. And this really came down to a couple of questions. You know, do you see these satellite states as being worker states in some strange, deformed way or whatever? Do you see them as being worker states in the same way that uh, Trotsky saw Soviet Union being a degenerated worker state. If they are worker states, if North Korea was a worker state in some sense, then of course you would have to support it against the US. Another dimension of the question would be, well, you know, is this a colonial war, a war of, uh, uh, you know, a national revolutionary war against colonialism? You know, is it a war to liquidate the kind of remnants of Japanese colonialism and also to throw off the new neo-colonialism of the US in, in South Korea? In which case, Yes, perhaps you could argue again, even if you're a Trotskyist and you oppose the Soviet Union, perhaps you could argue again that it's right to support North Korea because they are persecuting a, um, you know, a nationalist revolution against colonial rule. But there were then, as I said, many Trotskyists who didn't agree with that. People like C.L.R. James and Raya Donayevskaya in the U.S., uh, people like Tony Cliff in the U.K., and also uh, other figures um, like Castoriadis in in France who didn't take that line. They they took more of a kind of third camp position, saying that that both sides were effectively acting as imperialists. This was on you know a case of the first war between U.S. imperialism and Soviet imperialism. Well, there's a final question that I wanted to ask you, but it is quite a broad question, so perhaps it's several questions in one. Almost seventy years on from the armistice, the partition of Korea is still frozen in the place where it was at the end of the war. What would you say has been the the long-term implications, the long-term consequences of the war for the political development of the two Korean states? And how have people in either of those states been able to face up to that historical memory? Yeah, obviously the war had a huge effect on the two Koreas. Uh, I mean, there's that famous quotation that uh, war makes states, you know, I mean, obviously, these were states that already existed before the war, though they were very much fledgling states, but the war certainly helped to consolidate two authoritarian states, states you could perhaps call garrison states in which, you know, uh, military service came became an absolutely key part of the lives of all Korean men in both Koreas. And still is today, actually. You know, South Korea still has one of the longest military service periods in the world. It is, of course, behind, I think, Israel and it's behind North Korea because North Korea, I'm pretty sure, has the longest military service period in the world. It's something like 10 years, depending on various different factors. So it created these kind of garrison states built around a kind of extreme form of developmentalism in both countries during the 1950s and 60s and 70s. And that developmentalism, that industrial, that sort of forced pace industrialization was also closely related to the militarism and to the need to build up a strong army and a strong military hardware to defend themselves against each other or potentially to, at some point, carry out a 
a reunification by force. Uh, so they, they they kind of created, in this sense, these two mirror image, these two mirrored kind of militarized states in both countries, uh, both North and South Korea in the 50s, 60s, 70s, developed very extensive security apparatuses for suppressing uh, dissidents and so on. The difference, the real big difference then comes in the 1980s when there is a big democracy movement in South Korea, which ultimately is victorious um, in 1987 to 88 with the first democratic elections in 1988. And that does not mean sort of that instantly the South Korea was able to begin coming to terms with the legacy of the war. And as I said, the the run up to the war, which was such a a brutal um, time in, in, in an almost genocidal time in Korea's history, it doesn't instantly come to terms with that. That has taken a number of decades. It's really once you get into the early 2000s, that's in South Korea, there is enough impetus to begin to really come to terms with so many of the issues that were thrown up by the war. And you get a Truth and Reconciliation Commission established in the early 2000s in South Korea. And so since then, slowly, more and more research has been done, more and more of this has come out into the open but it's still a slow process, and it's, it's. I would say it's very far from complete. I think one of the one of the places where it has gone the furthest would be in uh, Jeju Island, you know, off the south coast of South Korea, which was the place where there was a major uprising against the uh, U.S. military government and then the Syngman Rhee government in in 1948 49. And there, that process of coming to terms with the the Korean War and the origins of the Korean War has gone. I think quite a lot further than elsewhere. And you can go there and visit the Peace Park and the museum and, and see these incredible memorials to the people that died. So uh, I think that process has still got quite a long way to go in the rest of South Korea. In terms of North Korea, I mean, I think, you know, both North and South Korea created their own kind of self-serving narratives of the Korean War after the end of the war. And certainly North Korea has done that very much. I've actually visited the war museum in Pyongyang. It's to give you a sense of the kind of self-serving narrative that they have in in North Korea. It is called the Museum of the Victorious Fatherland Liberation War. (laughs) It is very much referred to uh, with the prefix victorious. And of course, it is a war to liberate the fatherland. And uh, that that narrative is is very fixed. It continues to this day, and and it also helps to serve the personality cult of the Kim family. In that museum, apparently, it does have some fairly extensive exhibitions about the role of the Chinese forces, but those are not very prominent, particularly to someone like myself coming from a European country. I was not shown those exhibitions. Apparently, they're mainly shown to Chinese visitors to North Korea. So the the narrative again really focuses on Kim Il Sung and on the North Korean victorious role in fighting off the American imperialists. And I think, you know, it's it's as yet very difficult to move beyond that kind of narrative in North Korea. You know, almost all narratives about Korean history in North Korea are really mandated by the state, and none more so than the recent history, i.e. the, the Korean War. It's absolutely mandated by the state, and there is only really one way to interpret it. So, yeah, I think in North Korea, I don't know when such a a reckoning with the legacy of the war will happen. And probably, unfortunately, those people who directly participated in it will have died by the time such a, a reckoning can happen. 
There's an interesting contrast, isn't there, between Korea and Vietnam in terms of post-war development that Vietnam, both North and South, suffered the same kind of material devastation as North Korea did, both carpet bombing by the US and um, free fire zones, the Phoenix program and so on, all the atrocities that are well known. And yet, even though it came out of the same ideological matrix of the Soviet-led communist movement, the political character of the post-war Vietnamese state is quite different from the character of the North Korean state. Of course, it's it's a one-party state, it's authoritarian, but it appears to be much more open to the outside world and practice a, a different kind of collective leadership. There's never been the same personality cult, even around a figure like Ho Chi Minh, never mind about any of the post-war leaders. Do you think that's best explained by the fact that, that Vietnam won the war? Yeah, I think it absolutely is, you know, but it's something that's really fascinated me before just looking at the difference between the the, the outcomes in the two countries and the fact that one thing that always amazes me whenever I I have to remind myself of this fact that that the Vietnamese began to seek reconciliation with the Americans to some extent very, very early on and to begin to, you know, establish trade links and so on. And then, of course, moved on in the in the 80s very quickly to sort of follow the Chinese example of um, of reform and opening and then become, you know, in, in capitalist terms, very successful at that um, particular pathway, which you certainly can't say in terms of uh, the North Korean economy. But, uh, yeah, it's absolutely to do with the fact that they didn't win the war. They didn't un- reunify the country. And North and South Korea have been stuck and locked in this division system, as it's been called by some scholars, they've been locked in this division system, which both states are kind of built around in a way. Um, The South Korean state less so today, but still to some extent built around this division system. Uh, They are reliant on it, you know, um, and, uh, and in a sense, everything that North Korea does has to reflect its the, the, the fact of division and the fact that it is locked in a, a, a deadly rivalry with the world's biggest superpower and with its southern neighbour. I think that's frozen much of North Korean political development in place. So when people sort of look at North Korea and see this very strange, abnormal place or this place that is out of time somehow, you know, that it's, it's stuck in the past, people often talk about that kind of thing. I think what they're seeing is this is this way in which the the political system in North Korea, in order to preserve itself, has had to kind of take on this sort of rigid, fossilised or relatively, I mean, yeah, I have to be careful about this because North Korea has is, is changed massively in the, in, in the last couple of decades. But it, it, its political system has become, you know, quite fossilized in, in place. And it has not able to, it's not able to contemplate the kind of reforms and opening that happened in China or, or Vietnam, because it fears that with South Korea as its neighbor, and the US breathing down its neck, those kind of reforms would be would spell the end, basically in the same way that, 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 that you know, Perestroika did for, for Gorbachev. Many thanks to Owen Miller for giving us such a clear, comprehensive and fascinating account of the war in Korea. If you want to know more about Korean history, I'd recommend starting with Owen's article for Jacobin earlier this year, which has the title Uncovering the Hidden History of the Korean War. <laughs> 